Hello, and welcome to the Veridical Podcast. I'm Jax Azair. Alright, as I said last podcast, it appears every day I look in the news. I find something detestable that I just would love to talk about. So I turn to my fellow Christians, my fellow believers, and I am met with equally detestable ideologies. It is now 10 p.m. I actually just got done working a shift and I was on my way home to get some sleep, but I quickly turned to come to my recording area because today I had two excruciating conversations. One with a friend in person and another with my pastor on the phone, and I felt as if logic and rationality were just escaping the air in these conversations. So I quickly turned to come to my recording area and get them off my chest, but I'm now making a executive decision, (laughs) saying I am in too much distress to be able to coherently discuss these topics, but rest assured, the world around us and the culture around us leaves enough to talk about. And on my social media a couple weeks ago, I posed a question for people to give topics for me to discuss on here. Some of the responses were reprobation versus predestination, who is holy, murderers in heaven, energy stones, salvation, the Bible, liberal versus reformed theology, and the institution I'm currently learning at, Dallas Theological Seminary. So there is enough here to talk about for an hour, but before we get started, There's some things that have just been extremely distressing to me. One of them is the debate I watched last night. So, if you are not aware, last night was the governor debate in Texas. It was Beto O'Rourke versus Greg Abbott. I believe I can be pretty transparent here on my own podcast, so I will admit I am reluctantly voting for Beto. I am not proud of that, but it continues to be the case that the Republican Party keeps putting forward the shittiest candidates you could ever imagine. You want a conservative with healthy conservative values who has not left his logic and reason at the door, but the conservative, rather, let me say, the Republican Party continues to put forth the craziest theocrats and demagogues. And I already know the response is, well, the liberal side is just as clueless and unreasonable. And sure, there is a lot to criticize on the left. The left is just so masochistic with its way of reasoning. I can feel myself divulging into a black hole here, and I'm going to pull myself right out of it. I 
have plans to discuss my current perception on politics. My last episode, Trumpocracy, was more or less my view on the identity cult of Trump, and not really a good drawing of my current political position. So, I believe it is safe to table this talk and save it for another time, where I am more sober-minded and can safely articulate my views. And I believe that is enough preamble, so we can go ahead and get started. The first topic to discuss is reprobation and predestination. For those that don't know, reprobation is a Christian theological term. It basically entails a mixture of free will and God's sovereignty. So the idea is an individual can be so anti-God and so enveloped in sin and clear rejection of the gospel that God, in turn, rejects them and essentially torments their consciousness so that they stay in this perpetual state of rejection. I believe the closest example of this we get is in Exodus, where Moses goes to Egypt and follows God's command to tell Pharaoh to release the Israelites uh, who are held in slavery. So here we see in chapter 7, verse 1 of Exodus, uh, it states, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So it appears that God is forecasting a manipulation of the consciousness of Pharaoh. And this is by definition reprobation. Now, there come some difficulties. I believe a good rule of thumb when reading scripture is to never read one verse in isolation. You, you really want to learn to read Bible books cover to cover. It, it, try for one sitting. Uh, at least do it once so you can get a firm grasp on the nature of the story. Just like any movie or book, you wouldn't open it to a random page or start a movie an hour in and expect to understand it. No, you would, you would start at the beginning. And when there's confusing parts of the beginning, you just assume, safely, that these will get patched up later on in the movie. Well, the same goes for the Bible. The problem is that so many people read one Bible verse, or even one chapter, in isolation. And the most they get to contextualize it is maybe a paragraph before and a paragraph after. That is ineffective. It's, it's intellectually suicidal to read a Bible like that and then claim to know some of the eternal truth from Scripture. Now, one downside of me and discussing this topic is I am not literate in Greek and Hebrew. I cannot go to the Hebrew Old Testament and effectively exegete 
the verses of, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Or earlier in chapter 6 when he says, Now you shall see what I'll do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. That is an English translation and interpretation of the Hebrew language. That is always going to fall short. So, I think it's safe to say that your Bible is inerrant and infallible, but more so the original Hebrew text and Aramaic and Greek text. At some point, to some degree, your English translations are errant. So, in discussing this text, let's start earlier in the story. So around chapter 4, verse 10, it states, But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. This is after God told Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh to let the people go. Uh, Picking back up in verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Now, this is hermeneutics 101. When we read who makes man deaf, mute, seen, or blind, this is not God saying he desires people to be born blind or deaf or mute. This is more or less a reassurance to Moses that eternally, at the end of the day, all natural factors aside, all power, all execution of chemical reactions and synapses in the brain, they can all be boiled down to the sustainer. This does not mean that the world is not sinless. This does not mean that people can be born with dysfunctions. More or less, all good entropy stems from the Lord. So when Moses is saying, I I can't do it, I'm not good enough, I'm slow of speech and tongue, God is reassuring him, hey, if I tell you to go do something, rest assured, you can do it. I would not send you on an impossible mission. Uh, Now, maybe some cases, God is sending someone in scripture out to prove to them that they can't do something without him. But it is safe to say that this passage is conveying to Moses where his powers will be coming from, where his abilities will be coming from. That aside, on a theological level, reprobation is difficult to reconcile. For everyone who's a firm believer in the Lord, and for everyone who's fairly orthodox, it doesn't strike too much concern. But when you get into the realm of people who are denouncing the Lord, who are rejecting the gospel, people that you love and care about, and under your belief, they're going to hell, that is painful to then have to imagine that God is willing this. He desires for them to reject him. Now, I don't believe this, and I don't not believe it because it makes me uncomfortable. I think you can reason to a point where this seems illogical and not true. As stated earlier, 
When you see the Bible as a unified narrative, as a collection of stories that are under the umbrella of one major story, and you learn what Exodus is to that story, you begin to see just how pivotal all of this development really is. Exodus and the testament of the Jews being freed from Pharaoh's grasp is critical. When you get into Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you learn that God is always reminding them, remember, I am the one that took you out of the bondage of Egypt. And to this day, Jews everywhere around the globe still remember this pivotal event. The important question to ask is, if God did not harden Pharaoh's heart, would Pharaoh have done differently? Well, I think when you take a study and a survey of the history of the ancient Near East and the different empires and kingdoms and dynasties in the region, well, it was more of a continuous conquest of the Mesopotamian region. And time after time, with Thutmose, Amenhotep, and Hammurabi, all these different leaders were ruthless in their conquest. And under Ramses, which was another pharaoh, we have a lot of evidence relaying information about slaves and prisoners of war. Now, the pharaoh is not named in Exodus, and I believe there's a theological reason for that, as the pharaoh did not know the name of Yahweh, but the irony is he eventually comes to know the name of Yahweh, the god that he did not know. But the god that everyone is supposed to know, Pharaoh, remains nameless. I believe that is theological irony on the writer's part. Now, I believe, and I think it's safe for others to believe and extrapolate from the text, that it is the nature of God that Pharaoh was initially predisposed to. Pharaoh, from the start, did not know the name of Yahweh, did not fear Yahweh, did not care for him. And Pharaoh was making a name for himself with his region and his slaves and the brutal treatment of these slaves. Now, if you'll bear with me, I'm going to try to paint a picture here about God from a philosophical perspective. So many people like to take a position against God as being immoral. Now, I've always stated that God can do basically whatever he wants. And we're not in a position to say he's wrong. Now, that sounds obtuse because God may be doing things that are against our moral values. But at the end of the day, if you're using that as an argument against God, you have to fulfill the prerequisites of your argument. If your argument is God can't be real because he is evil, well, that is a fallacy. How can something that's not real be evil? And if it is evil, how can it not exist? That just makes no sense. So if you're going to imagine a world where God is evil, you have to imagine a world where God is real. And if you imagine a world where God is real, you then have to imagine that God made you and he made your brain. Precisely the thing that is determining he is evil. So you have to use the tool that he designed for you to say that the designer 
of the tool is wrong. So you could see the argument begins to just dissipate entirely, piece by piece. I'll say it again. If you are imagining God is evil, and you're using that as an excuse to not believe in him, if he is evil, then he is real. And if he's real, he created the brain you're using to denounce him. It, it ends there. Now, you may be wondering why I bring this up. I say this because if we have a problem with God hardening Pharaoh's heart, we have to assume by nature that God is being just in this moment. Now, again, I believe it's safe to unemotionally, but logically say that Pharaoh, by his nature and by the evidence we have from the ancient Egyptian world, that Pharaoh was by nature predisposed to God. But if Pharaoh would have reasoned well, if Pharaoh would have been sympathetic to Moses and his demands naturally, without God intervening, as I stated in episode two and three of this podcast, it's safe to say that God is still just, that no one gets to heaven, no one gets to hell, and then says they didn't deserve it. Now, to bring more daylight to this passage, we see later on in chapter eight, in verse 15, well, actually, I'll start a little earlier, uh, pick it up here at verse 13. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses and the courtyards in the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So in this verse, Pharaoh is the one doing the hardening. When I said he hardened his heart, the, the he is lowercase. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Now, we don't see the Lord intervening here. We see that the Lord affirms that this would happen, that the Lord predicted this to happen. But this is Pharaoh doing the action here. Pharaoh is doing the verb. So, I believe this backs up what I'm saying, that Pharaoh is predisposed to the Lord. After reading a few commentaries on the subject, you can also find that many scholars are stating that God is using Pharaoh's stubbornness. Now, for an AMA, this has been a long time on the subject of reprobation, but this is a serious topic that a lot of people struggle with. Is God manipulating us? Is he hijacking us? Is he taking away our free will? And that takes me into the second part of the submitted question, that of predestination. Now, as many know, my favorite movie of all time is Interstellar, and one of the themes in the movie is that of Murphy's Law. This is obviously what the character Murph is named after. And Murphy's Law states that anything that can happen will happen. So this is not in contradiction to possibilities. So is it possible it will rain tomorrow? It's possible. But if it doesn't happen, then it could never have happened. If it does not rain tomorrow, it's because it could not have rained tomorrow. Things can only happen that can happen. There has to be an amount of condensation and precipitation for there to be rain tomorrow. And if there's not, it's because it couldn't happen. Now, is it physically impossible 
that that could have taken place in an alternate universe? Well, no. It's not a violation of the laws of physics. But in our one reality that we live in, only the things that can happen will happen. So, taking that into the subject of predestination, it is safe to say that everyone who can go to heaven and can go to hell will go precisely because they can. If you can go to heaven, it's because you've already accepted the Lord. Now, is it possible in the future you will accept the Lord? Well, maybe. But do not mistake the term can as in an ability. That's not the way I'm using can. Can is more of a foreshadowed term in this sense. You can do that precisely because you have done the prerequisites. Looking more into the theological sense I am strictly against predestination. I think it not only makes me uncomfortable, I think it goes against the whole entire message of God. I've said free will is essential to maintaining a healthy theological worldview. On the episode about Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari, I said my belief in free will is dissipating, but only due to Achievements found in neuroscience is my idea of free will dissipating. It's not dissipating because of theological ideas. In fact, theological ideas are the only thing maintaining my free will. When I lose my belief in free will, but maintain my belief in religion, it's going to be very difficult. And I can foresee a very hard, stressful, and scary time in my belief coming, if that happens. I do believe in an immaterial realm, and I've been using sort of a cop-out to say that all things in neuroscience showing we don't have free will are not the causes, but the effects of things going on in the immaterial soul. So whenever people say, well, we can predict a decision you're going to make before you actually make it. I'm arguing that decision was already made in the nature of the soul. Now, another common argument against free will is that we cannot have free will because God foreknows what we will do. But that is not the definition of free will. Free will is your ability to come to that decision on your own accord. And having God know the future does not mean that he took that ability away from you. God can, in a sense, foreknow what you will freely do. Those do not contradict each other. Now, the favorite Bible verse of those who believe in predestination is in chapter 8 of Romans. It says, And he who searches his heart knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be confirmed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, same with Exodus. You have to take the context of this book. Romans is written to the church in Rome. Rome was basically the biggest empire at the time, and the 
Roman emperor was permitting Jews to practice their own religion. They were not being persecuted, to say. Paul is not writing these verses to non-believers. He's writing these verses to the church, to the current believers. So it is safe to say that all those in the church are already going to heaven. God does not need to distinguish between once he predestined for hell and once he predestined for glory. In this sense, all those who believe are predestined for glory. God knows who will believe, and so he's preparing a place for them. Just because they believe does not mean that they were decided against their will. And likewise, those who do not believe were not picked to not believe. This is where the theological obstacle comes into play. For those that believe in predestination, in fact, they believe in predestination but do not believe in free will, you are stuck in a very precarious theological landmark. You have to then say that God is manufacturing people for hell. You have to say that God is making people whose only purpose is to go to hell. And that is not a sustainable position when you're trying to preach the gospel. Now, as I said earlier, and I've said this in many podcasts, you can't choose to not believe in something because it makes you uncomfortable. Does this make me uncomfortable? Of course it does. Is that why I don't believe it? Well, no. I believe throughout the rest of scripture, we see people coming to decisions on their own accord, and we see a lot of inclination out of the words of Jesus to tell people to turn away from the glory of the current day, to face the glory to come. Why would God be, rather, why would Christ be urging people? Why would Christ be trying to persuade people of something that is out of their control? That just makes no sense. God is logical. God does not do illogical dumb things. So we can rest assured that when we look at the audience of the book of Romans, it is two believers. It is more of a reassurance. It is more of a morale boost. The section is titled Future Glory. Now the writers of the Bible did not put that there. That is more of our creation to make it easier to understand. But regardless, it is helpful. It kind of helps us see that this speech or this letter by Paul really is to encourage and affirm a pre-existing belief. I'll say it again. When it comes to the doctrine, I hesitate to even call it a doctrine, of predestination, the holder of that belief is in a very, very difficult position. And they have one or two verses regarding the topic. Uh, one line in the Old Testament with Pharaoh, and a few scattered by Paul. But the philosophical grounding for that being true in a practical sense is non-existent. Now, let me restate. Without God, and without an immaterial reality, uh, free will is a myth of the imagination. It is impossible. You cannot have free will without a belief in the immaterial realm, uh, because a soul 
is needed to direct those actions. Without that, you really are just a slave to your DNA. Uh, let me bring up a story um, of an individual named Charles Whitman. So, Charles Whitman was the Austin, Texas shooter. I am blanking on the year, but Charles Whitman wrote in his journal that he doesn't want to do what he's about to do. And he writes that when his body is uncovered, to do an autopsy on his brain. And after this, he puts his pen down or whatever, and he slaughters his mother, and I believe his sister or brother, and then grabs a rifle, goes to the university, and I believe he killed around six to eight people. And lo and behold, the police kill him, do an autopsy, and right there on his amygdala is a ping-pong ball-sized tumor pressing right down in the prefrontal cortex. And no doubt this inhibited his decision-making, his moral autonomy, and this really creates a roadblock with me and free will. Did Charles Whitman have free will? I don't think so. I really believe he was a slave to a bug in the evolutionary tract. And this isn't a cop-out, but I believe that these glitches in the evolutionary system are mere side effects of sin. The holder of religious beliefs has to nail down how they classify the Charles Whitman situation. Because if you believe in God, you have two choices. You can say that God manufactured this tumor to inhibit Charles Whitman, thus killing more of God's creation and leading to Charles' death and maintaining the same doctrine, also sending him to hell. And who knows what the beliefs were of the people he killed. So you have that precarious option. Or you can take a more theologically sound and conveniently more morally sound position. That God had other intentions for the world. And through free will, humans have tainted the world with sin. And the ground is tainted. And all of our perspectives are tainted. And the evolutionary track is tainted. When we see animals with appendages that are useless, or born with tumors, or an extra arm, or a missing leg, we can say that that is a side effect in the world of sin, in the same way that hurricanes and volcanoes and epidemics are. The average follower of Christ is groaning for a fix, and these signs that something's not right here, these signs that even the weather is against us, or is not caring for us. These signs will help steer someone to think, maybe we're made for somewhere else. Maybe this is not the final product. And I believe it's through these that God is not orchestrating, but has designed our brains in a way to where 
we can see that we need more. This is not sustainable. This is not the final product. And returning this back to the subject of free will, we can look at these cases like Charles Whitman and see that Charles as an individual did not have free will. Now, obviously Charles is a outlier case and does not represent all of humanity, but as all theories go, you have to be able to account for every single deviance from the theory. This is how I explain that, while also maintaining free will. I believe the person that doesn't have a tumor growing on their amygdala still maintains free will. Now, I may be wrong. I may get to heaven and God will say, are you out of your damn mind? No one had free will. That was me doing it the whole time. Or I may die and there'll be no God. Or I'll die and I'll be right. Or we'll all die and realize none of us were right. And one of God's other millions and millions of facets was actually the reality we were observing. Regardless, I think I'm ready to face whatever he'll say. Uh, but meanwhile, we have to make sense of the observations we have here in this world. And I believe free will and God need to coexist. I, I don't think they can be exclusive. So... I think that's enough on this topic. Let's move to the next topic. The next submission to the questions is a topic that kind of bothers me, and it's of murderers in heaven. And you can probably put anything in that category, so rapists in heaven, extorters in heaven, uh, cheaters in heaven, you know, all of these different things, you know, these slightly worse people in heaven. And I think the submitter of the question was wondering why that is, or if it is, or, and if so, why is it fair? Well, I think the answer is more simple than we make it. It's just our sinful nature doesn't want it to be true. So, uh, let me try to lay this out. If there is a being who created the universe, all the stretches that we can see and all the stretches that we can't see, who's authored morality, love, kindness, and is the explanation for everything good. And he has actively constructed a place for us. And that place will be uncovered after Christ returns. It'll be known as the final heaven. And there, there will be no tears, there will be no struggles, there will be no suffering, there will be rewarding work that doesn't exhaust and deplete you, but rather rewards you and encourages you. There will be a party and social time and peace and relaxation and rest like no other. Now. Assuming that place, knowing that under this same reality, you don't deserve it. You yourself do not deserve it. No, you have not murdered anyone. You may not have raped anyone. But 
the slightest imperfection inhibits you of deserving this place. This place is made for holy beings, Elohim. It's not made for you, especially after all the sin in your life. Though your sin will never be as bad as the mass murderer, your sin is already infinitely too bad to enter heaven. Now, through the greatest story ever told, God sends his son down to lead us, teach us. And what do we do? Well, well we kill him, right? We, of course we do. But it's through this death that all of these sins are covered. And now, the atonement is a very, I mean, it's not hard to understand, but it's hard to explain, right? Why does God have to have a sacrifice? And why does that sacrifice have to be a son? Why not blanket forgive everyone? Well, when you forgive someone, you feel there's a cost to yourself, whether it be trust or whatever you lost that was wronged from you. This is the cost, the life of the Son of God. But more than that, and I hesitate around these God is statements, but I digress. God is a perfect being who favors and loves justice, just as we here on earth love seeing justice served. So does God. Justice is always good. There's never been a time when justice has been served and it was wrong or immoral. So what is the justice for sin? Is it to let it run free? Is it to be ignored? No, justice is due response to the sin. Now, the justice without the death of Christ is hell. And that sounds like a fire and brimstone preaching, but it only follows. Now, luckily, that's not the reality. But the justice was served through the death of Christ. And now, God sees his creation the way Jesus sees his creation. How did Jesus see his creation? Well, we get one aspect of it when they're nailing him to a cross, and he's begging for God to forgive them. Well, that's how he sees us. He sees us as people that, while we're killing him, he's trying to get our back. Well, that is absurd in a, in a great way, but in a way that makes no sense. This is one of the few things in life that makes no sense to me, and I'm grateful for it. Now, that was a very brief and elementary overview of the atonement, but I hope that really puts it in someone's mind how undeserving they are, but how much they really get. Now, what would it say about the death of Christ? the slaughtering of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, and it covered all of your sins, but murder, that's a step too far. There's some things his blood doesn't cover. God is great and justice, and his mercy covers all, except for a few people. Now, 
that doesn't make any sense. His mercy only covers up to the point that we are comfortable. Rather, we could say, his mercy covers up to the point to where at least we are included. What power does God have if he can't save a murderer? The whole idea of this entire atonement process is that we no longer get judged by our actions, by our works, or by our sin, but rather we're judged by our faith in Christ. And let's be grateful for that, because God as an infinite being, when a wrong is against him, the justice needed to right that is infinite, right? It is infinite. And we will never reach the capacity of being able to repay infinity. So, the next observation here is, is the person a follower of Christ? Do they believe, not just in what Christ did, but do they believe that he did it for them? Do they consistently disregard Christ? This is where I get so confused with this question is, well, do you want people in hell? If you knew what hell was, you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. Take the worst human in the world. Right? So someone who's raped, murdered hundreds of kids, right? Just, I'm just making this up. You wouldn't wish hell on that person if you knew what it is, not just to them, but what it is to God when someone goes to hell. You wouldn't wish God to have to endure watching his creation reject him. And if that is where your desires are, that people go to hell and you lavish in that idea, maybe you're further from heaven than you thought. That all aside, the common question is, so you can shoot up a school and then accept Christ right then and there and then go to heaven? Well, on paper, yeah, I guess. But is that possible? Is that possible that within one minute or you know, 45 seconds, right after you slaughter a bunch of six-year-olds, you can then realize the work that Christ has done for you and you'll submit your life to him right then and there, and you'll repent for your sins, and you'll truly, genuinely believe this? How many times has that happened? I really don't think any. But here's the, the kicker. If that does happen, that's always good news. When the angels in all of heaven rejoice when someone repents of their sins, and turns to God, that is always good news. When is God gaining or regaining a lost son or daughter bad news? When is that ever bad news? I can't think of it. Why would we want people in hell? Especially when we know we deserve that at our core. So, again, the amount of times someone's shot up a school, or blown up a hospital, or just put a hundred Jews in a gas chamber and killed them all, 
and then right then and there just heard the gospel and fell to their knees. I don't think that's happened really ever because it takes true emotional and spiritual reform, right? You can't just say you believe in Christ. If that's all it took, everyone would be saying it just in case. No, no one's doing that. And no one's saying that that is all it takes. Uh, every now and then you'll see someone running up to a deathbed saying, Oh, real, real quick, real, real quick. Trust me, do, do, do you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Uh, I don't believe those really work. Uh, this really takes uh, reforming of the heart, a chiseling process. Uh, Christ says the road to follow him is narrow. Why does he say that? What does he mean when he says that? Is he saying it's easy to follow him? The amount of people that heard the cost of following Christ and then turned around and walked away sad had to have been immense. This is a choice, and it is a costly one. Technically, yeah, I guess, on paper, you can accept Christ in your life and continue living on the same, but I think that has happened zero times. Because if you truly, truly begin to encounter the living Lord, it makes no sense to continue living the same. That has to be a serious obstacle. I'm not saying sin doesn't re-enter occasionally, but a consistent choosing and loving and dwelling in sin. I don't see how those two coexist, especially if your meeting of Christ was genuine. I don't know. Again, when I die, we will figure all this out. But until then, I think this response makes the most sense. Now I have about two more submissions here. One is regarding energy stones, and I'm just going to put all of witchcraft in that. And the second topic is my attendance at DTS and my experience, my observations. But from the beginning of this podcast to now, I've decided I'm going to make that a separate episode. Uh, there's probably about an hour worth of content there alone. So I'll be tabling that. And we'll end tonight on discussing energy stones. <laughs> and uh, I guess with that crystals and tarot cards and all of that uh, banter. So this has been a very interesting topic for me. Uh, about two and a half to three years ago, I was in my apartment and I forget what it was, but I think I mentioned to my roommates I was going to go see a horror movie. And I think one of my roommates said, uh, be careful, you know, the spirits may return with you and those movies are demonic and it can be dangerous. Now, at that point, I'd been a Christian for, I think, about two years and my mind was fairly malleable. Uh, but again, I maintained a dedication to things that are comprehensive and things that make sense. Well, that confused me. And so I went on a search. I wanted to learn more about demonic spirits, if they even existed, and if so, are they really in Ouija boards? Are they really in Hollywood's movies? 
Now, if you go onto Instagram, you can find some pages. One of them I am banned from. His name is Daniel Adams. And these pages love posting videos of demonic possessions and exorcisms and all sorts of spazzing and compulsory actions. It's honestly very entertaining. And I was more curious when I found out a lot of people close to me believe this stuff. And like everything else I discuss here, these topics need to be led out to a logical conclusion. Right? So why is it that demonic activity on this crazy supernatural scale is always spoken about in African tribes or by that one guy who doesn't have a phone or all these situations where nothing's recorded. When it is recorded, it's by some MAGA 2024 give me money type of guy. And it seems to hardly happen around America. And conveniently, exorcisms dropped by a significant amount when the Catholic Church began revealing all of its skeletons in the closet. You used to actually have to pay for an exorcism. And, well, just how convenient is that? No modern science to diagnose mental illnesses, but you have a church here that will gladly accept your donation and will cure this mental illness. And more conveniently, if it's not cured, then the demon is just too strong. Right? So this raises a lot of questions, as it should, because there are cases of demonic possession in the Bible. Am I saying that these apostles and Christ himself were not aware of mental illness? Well, no. But I think it's safe to say that a lot of the events that happened in the New Testament regarding signs and wonders and Pentecost and demons and you know, pick your poison, I think there's a reason these things happened in the uh, region of Christ while he was walking and while the apostles were jump-starting the church. I don't think it's a coincidence that Slightly after, uh, the world's biggest population jump occurred. I believe these were necessary to portray the power of Christ, to verify his identity, and to verify the identity of the apostles who started a lot of the early churches. Now, am I denying the existence of demons? No. I do believe in the immaterial realm. And I do believe in the spiritual realm. But do I believe that these wars of demons and angels are playing out how we think? Not at all. My safety net is not a very safe one, but let me explain how it works. Do I believe in signs and wonders? Sure. Do I believe in demonic possession? Sure. But any time anyone says they can invoke it, or they observed it, my initial instinct is to disregard it. Yes, this puts me in an area of being unfalsifiable, but 
as far as I've been uh, aware of this, that's the safest way to process it. Every other assumption of demonic spirits and all of these different things opens the door for people to take advantage of it. And I believe when you look on Instagram and Twitter and you see people like Daniel Adams doing this, that is what we're observing. Someone hijacking the innocent faith of an elderly person or a more clueless, uneducated person and milking it dry for money and fame and notoriety. Now, moving to the topic of crystals and uh, what's basically witchcraft, do I believe it's real? Absolutely not. Most people that practice witchcraft or think that they're practicing witchcraft, well, if you were to go and talk to them, you'll realize most have just been hurt by the church. And I have a hypothesis here. My hypothesis is that all people who think they're practicing witchcraft have tasted the immaterial realm that Christianity uh, offers and is. They've tasted the need for the immaterial realm to explain things like morality, love, anger, their purpose here on earth. They've realized that materialism is the dead end for explaining a lot of these important aspects of life. However, Christianity, at least for them, proved too burdensome, or they saw too many Trump supporters, or they were hurt by the church. A lot of these things are reasonable. And especially in the political realm, I can see how a lot of people are turned off by Christianity when they watch thousands and thousands of Christians support Trump, deny the vaccine's effectiveness, a lot of Christians are flat earthers, a lot of Christians think the earth is 6,000 years old. Of course they're repulsed by this. But what's the next closest thing? What is something that offers the benefits of the immaterial realm, while also removing all of the stigma and all of the inconveniences of admitting your sin and repenting and picking up your cross to follow Christ. Well, I think the next closest thing is either Jainism or witchcraft. Now, let me say it again. Many people in my church, many people in my school, probably almost everyone in my school, and a lot of people in my community really believe that when these lunatics are saying Latin words over a rock or moving their hand across a Ouija board. I know many people who believe there's actually a demonic spirit active in that moment. Now, do we have any reason to believe this? Absolutely not. I'm willing to offer $5,000 in cash to... Anyone who's listening that subscribes to this idea, to prove it to me in real life. If you know me personally, you know I'm a sucker for getting proven wrong. And if you have any experience with me in real life, you know I've admitted to being wrong many, many times. And I'm willing to do it again. So that offer stands. And 
let me continue here. I really don't think we're doing the world any favor by entertaining these lunatics. Right? These people really believe that the month you were born in respect to the position of the moon affects your mood and your outcome of the day. Right? Now, the lunar calendar was created by man well after man had already existed. I believe the Egyptians or Mesopotamians came up with the four-season calendar. So I wonder how they were explaining uh, horoscopes before that. Now, there's already a dead end there. All of these beliefs are just lunacy. But I want to close on one particular aspect of it, and that is Satanism. Okay, if, if I haven't made this abundantly obvious yet, think of Satanist. So people who reject God but love Satan. Now, luckily, my thesis was proven correct partially already, and I think the leader of the Satanic Church came out and openly admitted, no, he's an atheist and this is all a political stunt, which is what I expected it to be. And again, it turns out that that's true. And you can't take a Satanist seriously. Where is the place that Satan is mentioned? Well, the Bible. So if you believe Satan is real, and you learned about him from the Bible, and that's your only source of information about Satan, well, that means that you must believe the Bible, which means you know that the team you're picking is the losing team. This is illogical. I do believe there's something spooky about the cognition and the mental state of anyone willing to say this, but I'm not really worried or believe for a second that they are truly Satanist. Now, I believe they're trying to piss off Christians, I believe they're trying to offend people, and because so many Christians really believe Satanists are real people, I guess it's working. The whole idea of Satanism on paper is you submit to Satan, and he will reward you eternally, and he will bless you, and he will make you like gods like he promised Adam and Eve. Well, again, if you read the Bible, I mean, the dude gets obliterated, and we know he's going to be destined to hell. And I don't believe anyone can logically subscribe to this, knowing they're a loser. Right? Satanism cannot be taken seriously. And when you look at people talking to rocks and talking to a Ouija board made in China, you shouldn't take that seriously either. These are sad, church-hurt, and or absolute lunatics who just want convenience. They want to give their life meaning that they can control. Now, can they actually control it? Absolutely not. And again, if you can, I invite you, cast spells over me. If you can, make them be good spells. If you want to sick it to me, right, doom me forever. Just try it. I'll reward you. Right? It will not happen. And every case you hear, I promise, dig in deeper. You won't find much. And if you are one of these people, 
that's praying over different stones and you're thinking you're seeing effects, please come talk to me. Well, first talk to your doctor and then talk to me. And I'm curious about what stones these are, right? If it's crystal meth, that begins to make a little bit more sense to me. But if it's anything else, I'm willing to wager you're lying to yourself. And I guess you guys can see I'm becoming a little heated up at this topic. And it's because I believe Christians are losing the war on the PR front. Uh, Christians just supported in mass Donald Trump. They support Israel unapologetically in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Let me say I'm not a fan of the anti-Semitic lunatics of Hamas, but I'm certainly not a fan of the uh, religious-slash-secular state of Israel. I don't believe a religion should get its own country, and more or less, especially when that religion, or that region, to say, has proven to be the most secular area in the Middle East. Uh, I digress, though. Uh, but people have watched Christians support this, and of course, Christians during the time of BLM were very quick to say all lives matter, and were very quick to unearth a lot of the flaws of George Floyd. On the PR front, we also watch a lot of Christians support people like Candace Owens, who is just a token to the right. They love watching Ben Shapiro, who's not even a Christian just talk over people. I'll admit I actually have a little bit more respect for Ben Shapiro than most people do. Nonetheless, he needs to learn how to have constructive conversation. Uh, people watch Christians flock to Fox News and watch Tucker Carlson berate and emotionally get flabbergasted over well-spoken individuals. People watch Christians believe that there is a drone in the vaccine, which will track us and kill us all. And to make matters worse, I think 100% of the Flat Earth movement is Christian. So, with all that backing up on the Christian side, then watching all the Christians get worried and scared and scream about people praying to rocks and to wood and to gold, and to a loser in the story, like Satan. I don't blame people for laughing at us. I don't blame NPR for making a news story about decreasing Christian numbers in a hopeful manner. I simply cannot blame them. All right, that will do it. I, I hope this was a good AMA. I hope this was pleasant to listen to. And I look forward to doing another one. Again, I believe the next episode will also be a break from a book and will be over my attendance at DTS. And after that, I'll get some other good reads out to you guys. Uh, Paul Bloom's Against Empathy is a good book I would love to get on here. I'd also love to get Douglas Murray's The Madness of Crowds. I'm also thinking of covering the book that was the progenitor of my entire academic career, The Moral Landscape by Sam Harris. So, uh, in due time, I'll get these episodes out. Schoolwork is always kind of nailing down on me. 
and I'm going to let that uh, be it. Uh, stay safe, and God bless. Thank you.